I don't mean that a piece of music has to be pleasing, has to be nice to listen to. Sometimes yeah, music has to be really annoying, but there has to be a sense why you do it, and there has to be a reward for it. Sometimes you need to put the, the audience in that mood so that you can tell your story, you can put bring your own vision to that. So it, it doesn't have to be pleasing, but it has to have a purpose why you do that and not all the music has to be nice. My music sometimes is really annoying, but there has to be a, a purpose why you do that. If you want to portray the horrors of a war, the, you, you obviously you are not going to have a Kenny G playing saxophone. But. <laughs> Actually, that connects to something. Um, I was talking uh, recently with a few composers as well about this. And when I go to contemporary music concerts, I try to listen for the discourse of the music regardless of the aesthetic i'm trying to listen and trying to understand what is the discourse where where is this taking me what is the message you know it's like a like a lecture you're giving a lecture what is the message you want to convey uh, what do you want them to understand of all these words mm. <laughs> so with music i try to also understand that what are they trying to tell to tell me and one of the, the things, you know, I mean, with several composers, I talk about that. Some, a problem of contemporary music sometimes is not, for me personally, it's not about the language. Actually, I'm very open to different languages. I've conducted many different languages. I'm happy to do different things. But what I find actually the hardest is to find music that has a discourse that is taking me somewhere. I want to have an idea of what what is the connection between those sounds. Mm-hmm. You know, why Why are you putting this sound next to the other sound in this particular duration or vertically connected to another sound? I mean, why are you doing that? It has to take me somewhere, right? It, there has to be a reason why you're doing that. Welcome to Language and Culture with Dr. J. This episode explores music as a pan-national and fundamental form of communication. My guests today are the conductor, Dr. Mercedes Diaz-Garcia, and the composer, Juan José Colomer. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. With this interview, I would like to focus in on music as a form of communication that has evolved alongside the development of languages and forms of verbal communication. There are many theories about whether people started to communicate first through language and then through music, or the other way around, or whether music and languages evolved alongside each other. Then I would like to know how you, as musicians, communicate with each other on a practical and on an artistic level. But also, how do you communicate with your audience, both expert and non-expert audiences? And finally, I would like to explore the idea of communication from the perspective of a composer and from that of a conductor. There is a different accent on each role and each comes with a different challenge. So we'll get to all these lines of questioning, but before we do so, I would like to bring you as musicians a little closer to my listeners. Mercedes, you began your musical career as an oboist and as a pianist, and later moved on to becoming a conductor. You are from Spain, but spent 10 years in the US and are now living and working in Hamburg, Germany. You have conducted orchestras all over the world, from North and South America to Europe. 
You have taken part in international music festivals such as the MIMO in Sao Paulo in Brazil and the National Music Festival in the US. You are currently the conductor of Sinfonietta. I had the pleasure of attending not only the performance of Sinfonietta at the Elbphilharmonie, but of watching you work with the musicians and observing your rehearsals for the concert. Juan, you are a Spanish composer from Valencia who spent over 30 years in the U.S. as a film composer, but also working with, for example, the Los Angeles Philharmonic or the San Francisco Symphony, to name only two of many. You are a citizen of both the United States of America and of Spain, but you recently changed your residence from L.A. to Madrid. You are a great friend of Placido Domingo, with whom you have worked on many wonderful projects. Some of your most recognized works include Raices as a symphonic work, or Añoranzas for harp, or the ballet you composed to bring to life the tableaus of the Spanish painter Joaquin Sorolla, or the opera you composed about the life of Pablo Picasso. Some of my favorites include your Ave Maria, and your piece for cello and piano called Dissipated Realities, and your newest composition that had its premiere at the Elfiharmonie, a piece entitled Agony and Ecstasy of a Sentient Machine. It is such a pleasure to be able to conduct this interview with two such accomplished and exciting contemporary musicians. So let's dive right in, shall we? Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So music has existed since the Paleolithic period for some 2.5 million years. But people didn't start playing together until later. In ancient Greece, around the 6th century before Christ, there was a type of orchestra, but it was used for expression through dance and not through musical instruments. Scholars believe a Neanderthal flute to have been the first instrument played some 55,000 years ago. What we identify as today's symphonies, however, came about much later in the 1700s as part of overtures for opera and so on. As far as language is concerned, most scholars agree that even though we know that humans communicated already before, the first identifiable languages are probably Sumerian, Akkadian, and the Egyptian hieroglyphs which have all three died out, but were used in about 2000 BC, which was about 4,000 to 4,500 years ago. And interestingly today, most of the world's population uses a mere 23 languages, even though some 7,100 languages exist across the globe. So Mercedes and Juan, how does music speak? Tell us please about its many tongues. Well, to me, the idea of music it works so well because even though it might be a contradiction, music is abstract. So in that sense, music is not telling you, for instance, uh, when somebody asks you, what is this music about? It's like it's not like a guy walks into a bar and then the bartender tells you there is not a, a specific narrative to the music. It's an abstract thing that uh, addresses uh, directly a specific part that is not addressed in language, which is emotional or just goes to some uh, some sense of uh, reality that is not uh, concretely expressed with words. So that is why music is so appeals to so many people because you don't need to know the language. You just, it just appeals to that part that makes you feel a little more uh, sad or a little more in, with more empathy. So it's a, 
it's not very well defined what appeals to it. It's a mix of emotions and a mix of intellectual, mix, mix of uh, uh, human nature qualities. So that's, that's why, to me, music has the ability of being so powerful. So being said that, I mean, it's also true that some music might not communicate uh, to anybody because even though music appeals is a universal language, it also depends on your cultural background. For instance, uh, some music for uh, from the Middle East might not have a huge impact on us uh, and Europeans, as for instance, uh, for, for them. So in that sense, there is also a cultural uh, element that makes it associate certain sounds, certain uh, phrases to, to our emotions. So I'm not sure if I've been clear, but definitely I'm, uh, my point is like it's, it's an abstract, abstract uh, way of communicating that uh, that is uh, complementary to words. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I was going to say that actually um, talking further about that, that even the the scale which in the Western culture we consider that quasi natural it's not right i mean it, it, we know it's just a um, construction in fact in other cultures they have completely different scales and different sounds and the conception of dissonance is also different even the idea of music is very different across the cultures you know if you listen to the quran a recitation of a quran for me it sounds like music it's beautiful it's very very beautiful however they don't consider that music that is not a part of what they consider music. And I was also listening to um, the Maui's, I think, in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And they have they have also a way of communicating, you know, a, an expression which they call music, that for us, it's so foreign to us that it doesn't sound maybe uh, like music or what we think of music. So, you know, even across cultures, the concept, not only the language, the scales, the fundamentals of music are different, but also the concepts of music. So, yeah, I mean, it's universal, but the the ways in which it's presented is very particular to each culture as well. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Do you think that we could at least compare the scales to the different alphabets, the different ways of writing? Yes and no, actually, because um, the scales are based on on a natural, I mean, they are not natural because they are constructions, but they are based actually on a natural, the overtones of a sound. Yeah, the harmonics, I mean, very much. Yeah. The harmonics, yeah. So uh, while um, the alphabet is purely, I believe, is purely a construction, right? Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it's, it's different. But how they communicate, right? So the so the alphabet is our way of noting down, mm-hmm. of writing down what we want to say, and the scale yeah. is the musician's way of communicating the music, right? The emotion or the or this aspect of communication, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, it will be like the building blocks, we could say. Of that, right? Yeah. So so it's interesting because what, what you're saying, for example, with the reading of the Quran or, for example, for me, reading Proust in yes, French is... Yeah. The music of the poetry itself is a music. It's a, it's a, the declamation of the poetry could be some type of music. Absolutely. And, and also what you were saying with this conveyance of emotion and of this universal feeling 
we have that through poetry, I think, as well. And, and you know what I was saying with Proust, when I read Proust, I, I actually, <laughs> I feel like I hear a music even. There is a, there's a music that is created through his words, through the feelings he elicits, the emotions he elicits, the, the way he puts his words together, etc. So maybe there is a way to enjoy Czech poetry, even if we don't speak Czech, or enjoying the sound of a certain work, also spoken work in a foreign language. From the musical point of view, do you think that's how musicians from various parts of the world approach then other cultures' music? For example, when you, I mean, you're both Spanish and you, you're both very familiar with the US, so that's the Western world. When you, for example, consider Eastern music, for example, or African music, do you approach it as a foreign language? To me, unfortunately, I, I do because and I say unfortunately because I would like to be more uh, uh, more knowledgeable about it, but uh, I haven't studied it too much. So to me, I, I would like to know more about it, but it sounds a little foreign to me in the sense that I feel like a stranger. If I want to incorporate that, I would say that it's just, maybe it's also a cultural thing that I think I'm, that I'm appropriating things that are not mine. But at the same time, I would like to use it with the respect that it deserves. But in the sense that you were saying, yes, it is like a foreign language to me that somehow I can relate to because I'm not a musician, but uh, I'm a musician in a different uh, field, if you uh, mm. matter of speak, yes. Mm. For, for me, actually, it's a little bit different. I do, I'm, well, I, I, of course, it's a foreign language as well because I, I didn't study that. However, I remember the first times I listened to music from Pakistan um, or Indian music or music from Af different African countries. And actually it touches, I think there is something really uh, connected. It's music that, in my opinion, uh, that, it, that is born out of a very strong connection to the self in a way, you know, and, and, and I feel that connection. So even if I don't understand what scales they are using, I don't understand what kind of rhythms, you know, there is a very, a lot of complexity. You know, even if I don't understand that, actually, it feels some of that music has felt very close to me. Mm -hmm. So as musicians, you speak the common language of music, and then you go into the different, let's say, let's call them dialects of it. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Possibly. So André Gide once said, to read a writer is for me not merely to get an idea of what he says, but to go off with him and travel in his company. And the same is true for music, I think. So Juan, how do you speak as a composer? How do you approach a new project? And Mercedes, how do you bring it all together? Because the conductor has to understand the composer, has to understand the music, has to understand the musicians, and has to make sure the so-called message is communicated to the public. And this is also an, an, an enormous task, right? Well, it's completely different uh, for every piece. Uh, sometimes uh, when I start, when I have to compose a, a piece, 
I usually take a few, I don't know how many days I have, but some usually days or maybe weeks, it depends how far away is the is the deadline. But I like to just put it in the back of my mind and just let the back, the, the brain in the back uh, start processing without even giving attention. But uh, I, uh, but then at that point, I need some kind of a trigger, something that really makes my my brain say like, uh, yes, this uh, could work. Sometimes it's just an, uh, a specific tone of an instrument. Uh, sometimes it's the idea of two clashing chords or two clashing notes. So every project is absolutely different, but it has to come from a moment of of uh, aha that the brain says uh, this could be the, the 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 seed that plants this piece, mm-hmm. and from there it's a matter of uh, dealing with your own uh, monsters inside. Meaning mm-hmm. that I want to go to some direction, but uh, uh, it's uh, the piece is very capricious. Sometimes goes in different direction that you want to go. Experience gives you the knowledge to know when to force that or not. Sometimes if you force a piece to go towards where you want to go, it's in detriment of the piece. Sometimes uh, you end up writing a piece that you didn't intend to. But if you really force it, you will, you arrive at a piece that is not, uh, it doesn't come from inside. It's just like when you turn a screw and it's not in the right path, it's just you're completely forcing it and it doesn't flow natural. So every piece you deal with different things and that's why at this point in my career, I feel that I still don't know how to do it. I don't have a technique, I don't have a specific approach to the piece beyond something that triggers my imagination. And from there, I start imagining and trying. It's trial and error being able to see if this uh, particular approach works or not and being honest with yourself and see like if the piece is communicating something or not that is your talent right if there were a formula then anybody could do it (laughs) so this it does grow out of your your ability to do this to focus it to channel it right that's the beauty of it possibly i like to think so and also because i don't know any other way to do it <laughs> for instance the classical uh, composer the baroque there was a specific uh, process to do it it was it was much more uh, standardized how they did the, the the music it's more it was more common the pieces themselves were more similar there were not the many variations mm. But then again, that's because I'm not really living, living in that age. Maybe there were some, a lot, a lot of uh, differences in their brains of how they approach the concertos or the symphonies or the sonatas. From my perspective, uh, it is completely different every piece, so I don't have a specific uh, pattern of how I do it. Mm-hmm. You, you could call it talent or you could call it uh, that I still haven't figured it out. <laughs> I, I will call it talent. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And Mercedes? Yeah, well, how I approach, well, it's uh, very different, actually, for for a performer. Well, with contemporary music, also, every piece, because it's a different language, first of all, I take a, a, the piece and I have to understand the language. You know, what is that it's trying to, to tell me? I mean, there are, there are parts that are very technical, like trying to understand the harmonies, the structure of the piece, yeah, how I'm going to work with the ensemble, you know, and the tempo changes or what can be the difficult spots that I 
might have to to work on for actually for studying a, a score it's a quite complex thing as well that it goes from the technical part to try to understand the concept and to try to understand the sonority try to understand the phrasing of the piece the direction how is it creating more tension so in the case of agony and ecstasy so at the beginning of course uh, you know it comes uh, we, nobody has ever heard the music uh, I didn't have any references so I wanted to, uh, to understand what he had written you know what were the sonorities what was the structure how he had treated the instrumentation the tempos the transitions that he that he had written and then in the first rehearsal anyway it's always a surprise you know even if you um, you've, you've studied all of that you go there and then uh, you see oh okay well this is this is even better you know it sounds really great i mean in the in the case of Juan Jose that was uh, that was the case the piece was <laughs> it's really good so I mean we in the first but in the first rehearsal for instance there were some technical things like he didn't want tempo changes between the transitions and there were a few moments when the orchestra wanted to to take the time you know so we were trying to figure out those small details about what what was written yeah how how to bring it to life let me ask a follow-up <laughs> yeah. question on that because it's so interesting. We talked about music as a language, and it is the language of musicians. And that's the technical part that you all agree on. That's the language that you all speak. And then you, as an ensemble, have to now communicate with this music, with each other, with the conductor, with the composer. And then all of a sudden it becomes really just human communication. <laughs> What's more difficult, communicating with the music or human communication? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, human communication is definitely harder, for <laughs> sure. Because also what the music says can be, um, music is very abstract. So um, what I interpret can be completely different from what someone else is interpreting, you know. So, of course, at the end, um, you have to convince the musicians that that your idea is the, the best idea. <laughs> so that, that, of course, that, that has little to do with music often and more to do with, with human communication, for sure. Yeah, but if we can make a comparison, for instance, there's people that are very experts at language and they use the same language all the time, like... Uh, I would say the judges, the lawyers, and the judicial system, they are experts at words and definition of words and how they use the words, and they cannot agree on what a perfectly written sentence means. So, you know, you have yeah. experts, and half of them would say that this means that you could do this, or the other half would say that no, it means that you cannot do this. So, if all those experts on something so tangible as language, cannot agree, imagine that the, the communication with music that is a completely abstract form of art is, is completely dependent of the human interpretation. So that's why it becomes so so rich in that sense. You, you have to work at it to make sense of something that people ultimately, it's, uh, they have to make sense for themselves because that's the perception of the music is what I get from it, not what you say, but what they perceive. Okay, and let me go a little bit more in depth. I love that comparison that even judges can't, <laughs> they can't agree on, on, a, on what one particular law says. They keep interpreting it. I, I love that yeah. comparison. But would you mind going back in that a little bit farther? So, for example, the piece that you mentioned, you were present, you, were, you had 
the opportunity, you had the luxury, right, of having the conductor right there with you rehearsing this piece. I know from theater, for example, that directors often, that's actually not something that's always welcome to have the writer, the playwright, right there for rehearsals. Hey. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> in music too, in music, in music as well. They are not always. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so would you, would you comment on, I'm thinking about one play that I, where I was involved in Avignon uh, in the rehearsals that was uh, with the playwright president. It was an absolute nightmare of, of getting the playwright <laughs> to agree with the director and the actors. And so how would you care to comment on that sort of, so who, who has then hierarchically, who makes the final decision or how is it, how does it happen? I mean, from what I observed, you as a conductor, you're very, very kind to your musicians. You're very intent on making sure that you really are truly an ensemble, that everybody gets to say and, and, and communicate what they feel and that you were very concerned about, is, is this okay for everybody? Has everybody, is there balance? Is there, you know, are, are all the musicians, is this the satisfaction of the ensemble? But how does, how does this happen? You know, who actually, if there is a disagreement or if there is a problem, how does it happen? How, how do you end up compromising or, or agreeing? Well, at the end, it's the decision of the conductor. <laughs> but generally, it is for practical reasons. <laughs> Normally, the com composer, once you give the piece to the, to the conductor, now you are not in control. You have to convey your your indications to the conductor. I cannot, I should not talk directly to the musicians. That is not my job. I have to communicate to the conductor what I intend. I have to talk to, to her before the music or even if she asked me something during that process. But I cannot, uh, uh, I have not the power. I'm not the boss of the musician or they, I'm not, they are not under my baton. So. I cannot address the musician directly and tell them to do something unless it's something technical like F sharp or if natural, something is a possible mistake. Even though I created the music, I have no say once the conductor is, is conducting the music. At least it's how I approach it. Mm. If when I talk to the conductor, I talk to the conductor, but I'm not in charge of the rehearsal at all. And, and for you, Mercedes, what has been so far the most challenging piece that you have served as a conductor for? From the point of view of the music, but maybe also from the point of view of communicating with the ensemble or the orchestra, and maybe even communicating with the public. What, what has been the most challenging piece so far in your career? Well, from the, the point of view of music, I'm thinking of Milo, Le Canyon de Toi. So from the from the musical standpoint, that was that was so difficult. Every measure, a different tempo, a different meter, it was very difficult, extremely difficult. From the the human po point of view, I'm not sure that that has actually nothing to do with um, with what music we do. Sometimes um, you are working with people that are going through difficult times, and that is, of course, that's difficult, you know, um, for everyone, even if they don't intend necessarily to uh, to make it difficult to other people. It, that is the result, right? I think that happens to everyone in every job. You know, you're working with a lot of different people and even if you have a very professional, very clear, clear boundaries of those relationships, sometimes it's unavoidable that when someone is going through difficult times, they they bring that also 
to the table, to the professional table, and that makes, um, of course, uh, things more difficult. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've conducted being sick <laughs> uh, sometimes, a few times. That happened to me, actually, with Sinfonietta in October. I was uh, I had fever <laughs> during my concert. And this is an aspect, right, that we, we ignore. As an audience, we are not at all aware of, for example, the evening at the Elfiharmonie, also, there were a lot of musicians who were not completely healthy and who were struggling yeah. with various <laughs> various colds yeah. and things. Yeah, winter in Hamburg is hard for some of us. <laughs> we get we get ill. Yeah, yeah. Juan, I would like to go into two of your works a little bit more in depth because I think they are something to reach towards <laughs> with contemporary compositions. Sure. <laughs> One is the ballet Sorolla. This is mm -hmm. for me the really truly the epitome of cultural expression that can and should no, 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 that has to be brought to the attention and pleasure of everyone. I mean, Thank you, know, you. <laughs> you know, Swan Lake is great and Giselle can you be breathtaking and then there's La Bayadere or Sleeping Beauty or the Nut, oh, the Nutcracker. <laughs> but oh. your ballet is a fresh breath of Spanish folklore. It is Oh, it is classical and pleasing, but it presents a Spanish painter whose works deserve attention. It goes into the many, 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 many facets of Spain, of its costumes and dances and regional instruments. And yes. to me, this is culture. This can and has to be savored and it, it can enrich us so much. So would you yeah. mind telling us a little bit more about your experience with the ballet Sorolla and how it came about and also how it has been received in Spain and in, rest, in the rest of the world? Yes, that was a, a wonderful, I would say, one of the most rewarding projects I've done because not only because of the result itself, but also the repercussions that it had. This is is based on some murals that are in New York in the Hispanic society that it was done by Sorolla at the very end of his life, even though he lived for 10 years, but that was really, it took a, a toll on his life because he had to travel a lot. So there's these huge 14 murals in, in New York and each of one depicts different scenes of uh, uh, customs in Spain, different regions. I was commissioned by National Ballet of Spain to write this ballet and I did uh, 10 of those uh, 14 scenes not 12 and there was also one of the a couple of the scenes were with uh, Paco de Lucia some music some flamenco music but pretty much like 85 percent of the of the ballet was with my music uh, with orchestra music and uh, it was uh, very well received it was almost two years uh, touring in Spain it went uh, it went to Miami it was very very expensive to, to tour out of Spain with the with the ballet so that's why it didn't go to too many places out of Spain but the reception was really spectacular the public really loved it and uh, as I tell you it was two years pretty much stopped touring in Spain and some parts of some some other places in uh, 
So I was very happy. And also the good thing about about it is that the music itself is also performed as in some orchestras and it continues to be performed. In fact, this coming season is going to be performed in Valencia. So I'm very happy with this. Because normally contemporary music is performed on the day of the premiere and then it just goes in perpetual forgetfulness. So... Uh, so I was very happy that uh, this piece has that long life and still continues to have life. Well, I think this is one of the pieces that will continue, will go down in history. I, I, I mean, I'm not a musician, but in my humble opinion. <laughs> that ballet was, the ballet itself, I'm not just talking about the music, the ballet, the whole, the whole show, the whole... It was, it was magnetic, it was sublime, so beautiful. So the National Ballet of Spain is, 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 a, is a national treasure. The, the amount of training these people have, the amount of techniques they have to know, the castanets, the, the, the heels, the, the taconeado, the, all these things they have to know. And they are coming from a classical school. So it's just, they're so rich, richly trained. That is, And then when you see them, all the repertoire they have with all these different regions of Spain, that ballet was so, so overwhelmingly beautiful. It's, it was like 90 minutes of pure magic. So that's why it was completely sold out everywhere it went. And that's one of the things that I enjoy about it so much is that it is really pure culture. It educates audiences about, like I said, instruments and folk dances from Spain. So it, so it, you know, it, it concerns itself with this aspect of introducing Spain and presenting Spain. But it also mixes folklore with classical in the dance style, in the music. It introduces a painter. It's it's just magnificent, and the music. Oh, it's it's what you were saying. It is absolutely beautiful. If thank you. <laughs> so the very first opera that I saw was mm-hmm. Tosca by Puccini. I was eight years old, and I went yeah. with my godmother who made a huge event out of it and explained, she explained the music to me and the plot and she made it all very exciting. And I have been an opera goer ever since. But I do have to say that I have grown somewhat weary of the programming of some of the major opera houses. I don't really want to see La Boheme again, and again, Tannhäuser, and La Traviata, and Carmen, and Madame Butterfly, and Juan. An opera like your El Pintor is so refreshing. Oh, (laughs) thanks. Care to comment on that? Well, uh, without uh, getting in trouble, I agree with you. Well, I I agree with both of you too. So, (laughs) I agree. I mean, the um, that's with programming. Sometimes, what I see some orchestra or opera houses in the world, they don't. They say, "Well, we want to give the audience what they want." But actually, uh, but if they knew all their other music, not so well known, if they actually had access to that, I'm sure they would enjoy it as much, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's also our job to be educators, to educate also, to show. I agree with, with that. You know? The problem yeah. is that sometimes contemporary is, well, I've seen contemporary compositions, especially for opera, but also for classical music. Oh, Sometimes it's very difficult, as, especially as a non-musician, to appreciate it. But, for example, that's why I bring up El Pintor as an opera and Sorolla as a ballet. 
it is possible <laughs> to have amazing, mm. uh, pleasing, aesthetically beautiful, interesting. You know, it is possible to do it with contemporary music. And I feel that has to be supported instead of, you know, also with ballet, like I mentioned, these classical ballets, they're great, but we can continue. We cannot just rely on these <laughs> well-known pieces. We can continue to have, I mean, we have to. Opera and ballet has to continue to develop and evolve, otherwise it will die out. Mm, I agree. Actually, um, but that's also when you say contemporary, the problem is that that word has such negative connotations. And also um, for, for most people, they actually don't know what, what that means. They don't know the diversity of languages that we have in contemporary art, in contemporary music. So they, for many people, I still talk with those who are not musicians, uh, and even some musicians, you know, they, they think contemporary music, I mean, they hear that and they think of the decaphonism or serialism, and, and they, they stopped there. They think that's it, that's contemporary music. And I say, no, but actually there is a lot more. Well, and I so, that's not contemporary, that's a hundred years old. Yeah, but that's where, but that's, if you say contemporary, that's what many people are going to think of. I mean, just uh, sometimes I, I've had conversations and I said, okay, what do you think? What kind of music do you, uh, what composer do you think of? And they even tell me uh, Schoenberg, you know? <laughs> so I say, well, but Schoenberg is not contemporary, you know? Yeah. I can um, support this with, with, for example, with playwrights. So I really focused for my dissertation on, and I had to specify, living authors. Because, um, mm -hmm. you know, I, when I said contemporary playwrights, everybody thought, like you said, well, okay, but they thought Camus, you know? <laughs> so, the, but, so, so I had to specify, no, 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 I'm talking about contemporary authors living authors right that is such a such a weird for me such a weird idea that we have as a society right because yeah. i think if people really knew they actually would like it <laughs> i i'm gonna say this and we'll see if you want i can cut it out but my mother-in-law, so my husband's mother, uh, plays piano. She's she's not a musician, but she's been playing all her life, and she's quite good. And mm. so for for Christmas, we gave her tickets to the Elfi to see Hauschka. And I wasn't really familiar with Hauschka's work, but I, you know, when you're picking a present, I mean, I, I looked it up. I, I listened to some, uh, some of his music on YouTube, quite enjoyed it, thought, oh, this is beautiful. My mother-in-law will enjoy it. And we went mm -hmm. to a concert that was completely experimental. He and I believe it's his partner, but a percussionist were playing mm -hmm. piano and percussion. And it was completely, I mean, for me, I'm sorry, it was cacophony. It was, it was experimental. I'm sure they had a lot of fun. I'm sure as musicians, it was great. He was putting a toilet paper roll on the piano, you know, on the keys. He was <laughs> putting a different tape. He was... I mean, they were experimenting and having a great old time. Uh, half the audience left. It was annoying. It was painful. It was nothing to enjoy unless maybe you were, uh, as they say in German, vom Fach. If you were an expert musician and you could sit there and say, okay, this is how he is deconstructing music and this is how he's... Uh, but it's it was not, in my opinion an enjoyable mm. concert and I don't think it did any good for for promoting contemporary music but again if if you want to comment please comment if you don't that's okay we can also no. cut out your comments or, but let me know what you yeah 
Oh, I'm not uh, this. I'm too old to care now. So I, I, go ahead. You don't have to cut anything. I say it all. I say it all the time. My opinion that uh, it's just it's unbearable. You for me, I think also as a as a programmer. You know, like I think of how to bring different languages actually that make sense that for the audience can be also interesting. I think uh, maybe too much of one language could be um, overwhelming. I think, however, that some of the music might have something to say as well. I've performed all kind of uh, aesthetics as well, and I I think in the right context it might actually make sense as well for the for the audience. And I also in that in that sense I really like the programming that you did because it shows different aspects of uh, of living composers. Although there was one that was uh, was not living but it was still a contemporary approach and I I think it it was really from an audience perspective it was very enjoyable it showed different things but all of the the aesthetics that you presented at the concert they have some appeal to them you might like one more than other but there there was a merit to them and there was some enjoyment uh, possible out of those pieces without being a torture. <laughs> so I really I want to congratulate you because the programming was really, really on point. And I, I, I absolutely agree mm-hmm. with you. For example, the piece from Fabia Sankowski is a difficult piece to enjoy as a non-musician. It, my point is, though, it fit into the programming. It showed the different aspects, the different types of compositions. And so that's where an audience can be educated. That's where an audience can learn with it. That's where an audience can remain interested also in pieces that are not as melodic or as pleasing or or as easy. And, and so that's, I think that is the key, for example. And also, yeah, I would like to add, yeah. I don't mean that a, a, a piece of music has to be pleasing, has to be nice to listen to. Sometimes yeah, music has to be really annoying, but there has to be a sense why you do it, and there has to be a reward for it. Because sometimes you need to build, uh, in some, for instance, I'm just making it up, you have to build 20 minutes of tension and, and rough music so that at that moment, at the last minute, you bring out something and everything comes together and makes sense. It's, it's mm-hmm. like a rough movie that at the end is like where you need to to present that, to put the, the, the audience in that mood so that you can tell your story, you can put the, uh, bring your own vision to that. So it doesn't have to be pleasing, but it has to have a purpose why you do that. And not all the music has to be nice. My music sometimes is truly annoying, but there has to be a a purpose why you do that. Thank you for saying it. Exactly. I completely agree with you. It doesn't always have to be this la 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 melodic. I can sing along (laughs) at all. But but exactly, you, you said it perfectly, that it just has to kind of, it has to make sense. It has to have a point. It has to lead to something. Yes, exactly. If you want to portray the horrors of a war, the horrors sure. of a loss or something, you, you obviously you are not going to have a Kenny G playing saxophone. <laughs> but. Mm-hmm. Actually, that that mm, connects to something. Um, I was talking uh, recently with a few composers as well about this. And when I go to contemporary music concerts, I try to listen for the discourse of the music, regardless of the aesthetic. 
I'm trying to listen and trying to understand what is the discourse, where this is, where is this taking me? Mm. What is the message? You know, it's like a like a lecture. You, you're giving a lecture. What is the message you want to convey? Uh, what do you want them to understand of all these words? Mm. <laughs> so with music, I try to also understand that. What are they trying to tell to tell me? And one of the, the things, you know, I mean, with several composers, I talk about that. Some, a problem of contemporary music sometimes is not, for me personally, it's not about the language. Actually, I'm very open to different languages. I've conducted many different languages. I'm happy to do different things. But what I find actually the hardest is to find music that has a discourse that is taking me somewhere. I want to have an idea of what, what is the connection between those sounds. Mm-hmm. You know, why Why are you putting this sound next to the other sound in this particular duration or vertically connected to another sound? I mean, why are you doing that? It has to take me somewhere, right? It, there has to be a reason why you're doing that. Mm-hmm. And that is what sometimes I, I don't find. Mm-hmm. I'd like to mention something that both of you do. I mean, you both try to reach young audiences as well. And Mercedes, while you were in the U.S., you were the conductor of Tricepta. Yeah, that was a, that's an organization in the university. I conducted several mm. operas mm. there. Yeah, you were the conductor of Tricepta that specifically promotes young American composers and presented, so to speak, shorter operatic pieces, right? And Juan, mm-hmm, yeah. you have been known to organize soirées that bring people together. In LA, you did that as well, and I think you're doing that in, in Madrid as well. And to also to bring music to young people, would you tell us a little bit about these initiatives? Well, in my case, actually, uh, Percepta is an organization that exists. And there was a chapter of that organization in my university where I did my doctorate. And every year they organized um, what they call micro operas. So young composers uh, had to write short theatrical pieces. I conducted several of those short theatrical pieces from the students, and that was actually lots of fun. That was uh, wonderful. I think that's, I mean, for a young composer, it's a wonderful experience. And I think it works very well. The contemporary music, when it's connected to theater or to, to a story, I think it works very, very well. It was mm. always very successful. Mm. Yes, in Los Angeles, I did have these artistic soirees. And the main purpose uh, was to bring audiences uh, that were not very familiar with classical music to, uh, to an environment where they can listen to a, a chamber, a duo or trio or chamber music. Because sometimes I found out in Los Angeles that people were a little, uh, it was too imposing to go to a concert hall and for them, they were very, it was too imposing. They, they, they wouldn't go, they, they wouldn't know when to applaud, when to, I don't know, it was, it was not an experience that they were looking for. So I thought of, to do this in my own um, home, I had a, a loft that it was uh, open space, so I had a piano there and I just invited people from the neighborhood and then people, uh, some friends uh, that wanted to experience this. And it was a very casual way of presenting classical music to an audience that were not familiar with it so that uh, that was my small contribution to the to the field of uh, of classical music and you're doing that in madrid now as well if i'm not mistaken. in fact i just did it last uh, saturday i wasn't sure if i was going to continue with it because it's a lot it's, a, it's even though it's your house it's a it's a production you have to make sure that a lot of things uh, well and uh, 
And I was a little tired because I did it for 11 seasons there for almost 10, year, 10 concerts per season, so more, oh, over 100 concerts at my home. But uh, then uh, I, I've been here for a year and uh, I, I wanted to try. Yeah, and I did that one last, uh, last uh, week and it was very successful and uh, I will probably continue because I really like the experience and people seem to enjoy it. Mm. Being so close to the musicians, and everything, how they move a finger, how they tap the, the, their feet or small details, how they turn their pages, everything so close and it's so... Then with a glass of wine and people talk to the musicians, and they have a really great experience. Because I also know that classical music, like everything else, is an experience. It depends... Uh, not only on the concert itself, to, uh, it happened to me. If I have a good disposition to a concert, I have a nice atmosphere, I have a nice conversation with somebody at the lobby, it predisposes me to have a better, better experience and somehow I am more benevolent to, the, to what I hear at the concert hall. So it translates, the, the, the whole experience influences how I perceive the music itself. So this, this concert, these stories are a good way of uh, making sure that people have a good experience around classical music and they have a good recall of it. Mm. And this is, if you look for, look at it from sociological point of view, I for my PhD, I, I looked at the sociological effects of theater on the community, and I used mainly the theories of Pierre Bourdieu. I don't know if you're familiar with the sociologist, but he talks about the different capitals, right? So we have financial capital, the money we have, etc. We have social capital, the people we know, but we also have this cultural capital, and this goes into exactly what you're talking about. People don't feel like they belong at the symphony. And so certain groups disclude certain activities, right? So it's also allowing the cultural capital of the different social milieus to mix and that promotes peace and understanding and communication. So that's really interesting and it's actually really, really admirable. And I'd like to go a little bit into sort of why I enjoy uh, theater and the arts and opera and everything. And I grew up with theater, right? Because of my parents, because of my grandparents, my, my grandfather, for example, had a vineyard. And he made really nice wines, and he loved to share this with the so-called theater folks. He always, he always invited the opera singers and the musicians and the ballet dancers to celebrate in his wine cellar. So I grew up personally knowing these artists, right? And, I, I, and because of this, the theater and the, the opera gave my family first balcony seats, right? So we had like first balcony <laughs> seats to whatever performance we wanted. And um, my father benefited uh, from this as well, uh, of course, due to his own personal charm, but partly to his, to his father's connection. He then, you know, had these relationships with the singers and the dancers and the actresses, and uh, yes. <laughs> he, in fact, he, people to share wine with. Yeah, 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 yeah. and you know, there's like these personal connections. I mean, I'll never forget this. My father actually had a long love affair with one of the actresses, and. I'll never forget this. I was a little kid and during one of the performances, she turned to our balcony seats and she recited this whole tirade, you know, this whole long monologue to my father. And, and then she collapsed dramatically and she actually had to be carried off stage. And, <laughs> so, so oh, then, and 
I guess, <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, I had this special intimate connection to the arts. And because of that, I've always kind of sought this out. I mean, I loved being at the rehearsals for at the Elfi for your concert. It's just so special and to sit next to the composer. And I've always tried to uh, give this to my children as well whenever possible. So I think I feel the performances more. And it's what you're talking about. It's, I, I somehow get underneath the surface and, and can enjoy it more. So how can we promote that? And how can we create this type of experience in larger audiences? Well, that is actually, sorry, I, that's actually one of the, the missions of Sinfonieta. And that's one of my personal missions as well, actually. Yeah, we are not only entertainers, but also educators. That's my idea as well. I think every every organization deals with that. They are aware that they need to renew the, the audiences, uh, their appeal to the audiences. So they have to keep reinventing, trying to see how they can approach uh, new publics and how can they make it. So there is not a magic bullet of how you do that. We try to do it in many ways. Uh, now organizations are doing it through social media, some of them more successful than others. But it's a constant, uh, constant search of uh, what works or what doesn't work. And you have to work not only on your art, but also on how you... Uh, bring people to your art so in that sense it's a constant uh, work and it has to be genuine it cannot be something you know i'm just trying to sell tickets it has to be a genuine desire to connect right that's what i say that some more successfully than yeah. others <laughs> you can see that they just hired a company to do social media campaign and it's just it's not organic it's just it doesn't go anywhere mm. So in closing, I would really like to invite you just very quickly to also reach our Spanish-speaking listeners. Would you say a couple of words in Spanish, your message, your invitation to your concerts, to your music? Porque tengo muchos oyentes también que hablan español y eso es algo que, que yo quiero hacer también, es no siempre promover el inglés, pero también guardar los otros idiomas. Y si, si les apetecería hacer así dos, tres comentarios en español, me, me gustaría muchísimo. Claro. Sí, claro. Para mí la música tiene un poder muy sanador y creo que hemos perdido un poco esa conexión con la, con la parte sanadora de la música y del arte. Y bueno, mi, mi deseo sería que, que volviéramos a retomar esa... Eh, que, que entendiéramos el arte también como algo muy sanador para, para el alma y bueno, para el ser humano, ¿no? Eh, porque estamos co totalmente conectados. Entonces, pues, um, ojalá que, que la gente se anime a, a conectar más consigo mismo, conectar con su parte también creativa, haciendo ellos mismos música, arte, yendo, asistiendo a espectáculos. Bueno, eso sería mi deseo, ¿no? Bueno, yo creo en ese sentido que algo que es muy importante y que nos une mucho es el lenguaje. El lenguaje español, que como hablábamos al principio, 
tiene mucha conexión con la musicalidad, esa musicalidad del lenguaje también creo que nos une en un concepto musical eh, común. En ese, en ese aspecto yo creo que los, la gente que hablamos en español tenemos eh, culturalmente unas raíces muy comunes y que, y que estamos muy en contacto unos con otros y estamos muy cercanos culturalmente en ese aspecto. pues Por eso aquí se interpreta muchísima música eh, de compositores eh, latinoamericanos y de hecho en el concierto con, con Mercedes eh, teníamos a Gabriela Ortiz que está, vamos, está por todos sitios últimamente, la están interpretando por todo el mundo y yo creo que es un momento muy bueno para la cultura, para la, en este caso los compositores eh, latinoamericanos y poder compartir ese espacio cultural que, tanta, que tanto, en tanto beneficio va a redundar para todos nosotros. Juan y Mercedes, gracias so much por tomar el tiempo para hablar conmigo. Thank you and Thank you. adios. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Okay.